today on Against the Grain. Hundreds of millions of people have moved from China's countryside into urban areas. Have the working-class migrants who've built China's megacities been rewarded for their efforts? I'm CS. We'll revisit a conversation with Cornell professor Eli Friedman coming right up. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. It's been called the largest mass migration in human history. It is the movement of Chinese people from rural areas to China's cities to work in construction, manufacturing, and other industries. We're talking about the migration of about 300 million people, people who hoped to make a living and enjoy the benefits of residing in cities like Beijing, Shanghai, and Guangzhou. So what happened to them? How were and are they treated? What social services can they access? What sort of education are they able to get for their children? Eli Friedman takes up these pressing issues in his new book, The Urbanization of People, The Politics of Development, Labor Markets, and Schooling in the Chinese City. Eli Friedman is Associate Professor of International and Comparative Labor at Cornell University's School of Industrial and Labor Relations. When Eli and I connected recently, he began by describing how migration and work operated in mid-20th century China. After the revolution in 1949, the government went about establishing what they called the, the household registration system or the HUCO. That's something that I've, I've studied a lot and I, I'll certainly have more to say about. But uh, what it does is it, it kind of pinned people in place. And so your access to social services became located in a particular place in the country. And it was very, very difficult to move that household registration from one place to another. So you couldn't be someone living in the countryside in China in the 1960s or 1970s and just and decide, hey, I want to move to Beijing, and so I'm going to, I'm going to pick up the family and, and move. Um, and so there's some studies that compare China, you know, not only to uh, American uh, capitalist countries, uh, but even compared to the Soviet Union. If you look at mobility, it was much lower in China than it was even in these other state socialist countries. So there was very, very little movement that was happening at all during the 1950s, 60s, and 1970s. And what you have beginning in the 1980s, um, once Deng Xiaoping comes to power, he establishes these special economic zones, he legitimizes private enterprise, and so you have foreign investment that's coming in, setting up factories that are producing goods that are largely going to be destined for the United States, for Europe, and for other wealthy economies. And um, in order for these factories uh, to work, they need workers. And so the, the government identifies as their key comparative advantage in this, in this development strategy, China's large, relatively healthy and well-educated uh, workforce and a workforce that, of course, is also quite inexpensive in the 1980s. And so they begin to develop these kinds of administrative arrangements that allow people to at least temporarily leave their place of household registration to move to the cities for work. And again, that's really kind of the social basis of that whole model of economic development. What kinds of jobs in the cities were made possible by this economic expansion? What were, let's say, the majority of rural folks who were moving to Chinese cities at this time in the late 1900s and early 2000s? What were they enlisted to, to do there? So there's been a real evolution over the last 40 years. And initially, the special economic zones were set up in the southeastern part of the country. And again, they were very focused on this export-oriented form of production. So, so factories were, were the place where people first got lots of employment. Um, and you see a big expansion in employment in manufacturing through the 80s. Uh, and through the 90s, it actually really begins to, to slow down um, uh, by the end of the first decade of the 21st century. 
And you begin to see much more diversification in terms of the kinds of employment that rural migrants are ending up in when they get into the city. One big area that's absorbed a huge amount of this rural labor is, is in construction. So if you've been to Chinese cities any time in the last uh, 20 years, you can see that just these, these massive megacities have kind of sprouted up overnight, the clearest example being in, in Shenzhen. But, but other cities, Beijing, Shanghai, et cetera, have all grown really, really quickly. So you need people to, to build the buildings. China has spent a huge amount of money developing a really world-class uh, infrastructure system. So they now have far and away the largest high-speed rail network anywhere in the world. They have uh, port facilities and airport facilities that are much more uh, advanced and much larger than, than anything we have in the United States. All of these things need to be built, right? And so construction has also absorbed a lot. Um, but one of the, the interesting things as we move uh, closer to the contemporary period is we quickly see that the service sector absorbs more and more uh, of these workers. So we have people who are going to work in food and beverage and hospitality. We have people who are um, doing sanitation work, uh, domestic workers, reproductive labor of all sorts, uh, cooks, nannies. These are, these are developing quite quickly. You write that poor migrants from the countryside in China tend to be funneled when they get to the cities into informal labor. What do you mean by informal labor? There's a lot of different ways that people think about informal labor. This is something that labor scholars have studied in lots of different places around the world, particularly in the Global South, going back all the way to the 1970s. One of the ways to think about informal labor are forms of work uh, that in, in certain contexts might be regulated, but happen to not be regulated by the state, by laws, they don't receive social protections, right? So, you know, you, you go home and, and you cook dinner, that's a form of, of work, um, but it's not a, a form of work that tends to be regulated by the state. You go into a restaurant uh, and you work as a cook, that's, that's a different kind of uh, a labor and that, that does tend to be regulated uh, by the state. So, um, Informality in, in China is, is a little bit difficult uh, to pin down for, for a whole variety of reasons. There's definitely not good official statistics uh, on this. Um, but the kinds of labor that are, are more typically associated with, with informal labor, which is things like uh, recyclers uh, on the street, you know, people who are kind of going through uh, materials that, that are left, scrap materials, and, and trying to salvage some of it. That's kind of a classic example. You have street hawkers, people who are, who are selling food uh, on the street uh, in, in kind of a, a legal a gray zone. Um, but we also have a huge number of workers that seem like they should be regulated by the state. So factory workers are, are a classic example. When, when the, the literature and the research on informal labor was developing in the 1970s, Oftentimes the foil or the, the assumed point of comparison was this industrial workforce in the global north, which had legal labor contracts, they had various kinds of social protections, oftentimes had unions, and, and people were pointing the, to the fact that there's all, all this other kinds of labor that, um, you know, that doesn't enjoy those kinds of protections. Well, if we look at China, a huge amount of labor in these formal seeming factories, these factories that certainly are, are regulated in some ways by the state, labor itself is, is actually unregulated. So you'll have people that are working in factories for a long time, they never have a labor contract. You have huge swaths, and in some cases up to half of the workforce that are these, these temporary or dispatch workers that are not directly employed by the factory uh, and do not enjoy any kinds of social protections. So it's very difficult to get a precise estimate on, on the scope of informality, um, but the, the salient point here is that uh, for a huge number, possibly a majority of the workers that are coming to Chinese cities, they don't enjoy any legal protections. I, I should say within construction, which is uh, absorbs, as I've just said, quite a lot uh, of that labor, it's quite exceptional to have a labor contract. Very, very few of these workers enjoy labor contracts. Eli Friedman joins me on Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm C.S. Song. 
He is Associate Professor and Chair of International and Comparative Labor at Cornell University's ILR School. His new book is The Urbanization of People, The Politics of Development, Labor Markets, and Schooling in the Chinese City. Where did the millions of workers from the countryside who came to the cities, who arrived in the cities to work in construction and manufacturing and some of the other industries that you mentioned, where did they generally, and you know, these are low-paying jobs, as you're mentioning, many of them informal, where did they find places to live? The housing question for migrant workers is really important because it has all kinds of implications for their experience in the city and also for their ability to access other kinds of social services. And it's really uneven. It depends a lot on the kind of work that you end up doing. So if we look at the export processing zones, which are quite prominent in Guangdong province in the Pearl River Delta area and in the Yangtze River Delta area around uh, Shanghai, it's quite common for those factories to have on-site dormitories. So there's a factory complex, it's generally walled. Uh, within that, you'll have both the production facilities and dormitories. Now, th these were built uh, under the assumption that the workforce was going to be overwhelmingly uh, young and single. And so for, for many years, you had this uh, people would come in as, as teenagers, they would stay for a few years, and by the time they got to their mid-20s, the, the assumption was they would go back to the village and they would settle down there to, to get married and, and have kids. That has changed somewhat. The workforce has certainly aged, and so they've had to adjust that somewhat, and we do see an increasing number of uh, factory workers who are living outside the grounds of the facility. So, so that's one possibility. When we think about construction workers, they're usually quite mobile and are moving around the city. Uh, and so it's quite common on, uh, at least on, on large construction sites, and most construction sites in China are quite large, certainly by American standards. Um, they will build these kind of temporary houses, basically trailers, and, and workers uh, will be housed on site there um, as well. But then you have all of the other workers, and they're in a diversity of, of workplaces. If you're working um, as, as a waiter in a restaurant, the chances that that uh, employer is going to provide housing are, are quite small. Um, if you're a street sweeper, if you're a food delivery worker, if you're a security guard, if you're a nanny, you know, these, these workers generally need to find housing on their own. And given the cost of housing, uh, particularly in China's megacities, which is absolutely exorbitant. Uh, if you look at the income to housing cost ratio in China's largest cities in places like Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, and Guangzhou, and you compare it to American cities, it's much, much worse in the large Chinese cities than it is in San Francisco, in New York, in, in London, in Tokyo. Um, and so the, there's a real, a real housing crisis uh, for the working class in, in Chinese megacities. So buy, just going out and, and, and buying a house on the market uh, is beyond the means of, of these working class migrants. Um, rentals can also be very difficult. And so what they end up doing is living largely in informal housing. Different cities have different kinds of arrangements. It really depends on, uh, on the geography, uh, on, on urban planning, which is different city to city. But it's quite common for people to live in these kind of self-built units that locals have, have built that exist in kind of a legal gray zone. There's oftentimes uh, substandard conditions, um, poor heating, electrical problems. There have been uh, issues with, um, with ventilation. There have, been, there have been fires that have tragically taken people's lives. They're typically on the peripheral part of the city um, and so oftentimes commuting to work can be a real challenge. Uh, it's not unusual in a city like Beijing for people to spend, uh, you know, more than three hours commuting a day. In other cases, uh, in Beijing, it's also quite common for people to live in, in these uh, informal, uh, not regulated basement apartments, and so they won't have any windows or obviously access uh, to sunlight. So there's a whole, there's a whole diversity uh, of possibilities, but uh, the short answer is if you're in these cities as a migrant worker, there's a very good chance that you'll be living in some kind of informal housing. Now, as your book indicates, by the early 2010s, 
obstacles to human movement into Chinese cities remained formidable. That's interesting because, as you were saying, the government's interest is is getting people from the countryside into cities so that they could do the labor that's required to to build China, to build the buildings, to do the work involved in manufacturing and service industries. Um, so why was human mobility into the city so uh, difficult until fairly recently? And what did the at least the Chinese national government uh, decide to try to do? The way I think about this is that the key social contradiction in China's whole development model is that they have gone about over the last 40 years constructing a national labor market, which is to say that people are free to move about the country and to enjoy the very thin freedom of, of selling uh, their labor anywhere. So you have a national labor market, but social citizenship, meaning access to social services like healthcare, education, subsidized housing, etc., is structured at the level of the city, right? And so that presents a real challenge from the perspective of workers. Now for cities, this has been a great deal and it really is key to explaining uh, the economic success of some of these fabulously, now fabulously wealthy cities. Uh, and the reason for that is because all of the costs associated with the social reproduction of that worker, their formation, their, their education, their healthcare as young people is born in the countryside and they show up uh, fully formed, ready to work, and the city hasn't had to contribute anything to the formation of that worker. And then when that worker is too old or that worker becomes sick, then they can leave. And they go back to the countryside and all of those additional costs are then have to be borne by the countryside as well. So cities really just get to have, have had this, this situation where they just get to enjoy the, the kind of the prime years uh, of this, these workers' lives uh, without having to pay any of the costs associated. Now, obviously, it's not been a very good deal for the countryside. Um, so that was kind of how things worked in the 90s and into the, the 2000s. But what we saw as the 2000s progressed is actually a labor shortage. And this was kind of puzzling to a lot of people when it first began to show up in the mid-2000s because, you know, here's China, the largest country on earth with 1.4 billion people. Uh, and, and, and many people assumed that there would be this you know, nearly endless supply of rural labor. Um, and actually, it, it dried up pretty quickly because people um, had a very difficult time settling down in the cities, and so they had to leave. And so the government has made uh, a pretty decisive shift. It was clearly marked in 2014, where for the first time in the history of the People's Republic of China, they actually encouraged people to move to the cities. Going back all the way to the 1950s with the implementation of this household registration system, they've really been trying to prevent rural people from moving to the cities, or at least moving to the cities and settle down, right? From the 1980s on, you could move to the city to work, but then you had to leave. And so from 2014, they're saying, well, we actually do want people to move to the cities. Um, for a variety of reasons, they think that it, they, they believe that it would help them increase their domestic consumption, which is to say, rather than producing things and selling them to the United States or, or, or Europe or whatever, that, peop, that Chinese people themselves could be these kind of modern urban consumers and that they would just buy the stuff that's being produced in China and so they'd be less dependent on these foreign markets. Um, and so they really wanted urbanization to be driving economic growth. Um, there is an important caveat though, and this is really important in my book, which is that they want people to move to cities, but they don't want people to move uh, to the very largest cities. And so what you see is that the, the smaller the city is, the easier it is for, for rural people to relocate there and to permanently settle down. The larger the city is, the harder it is, and the, the more restrictions uh, that, that there are, um, and, and some pretty uh, significant implications uh, uh, follow from that. I'm CS. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Eli Friedman joins me. He teaches international and comparative labor at Cornell University. He's written a book called Insurgency Trap, Labor Politics in Post-Socialist China. We are talking about his new book out from Columbia University Press. 
It's called The Urbanization of People, The Politics of Development, Labor Markets, and Schooling in the Chinese City. So why didn't the the Chinese national government, why didn't they want people to move to the the larger cities, the mega cities, the cities that presumably needed uh, quite a bit of labor because it had a lot of industry? The largest cities uh, do need a lot of labor, and the truth of the matter is, is that they cannot function without migrant labor. All of these workers that I just uh, talked about make the city run. But there's a, a consideration. There's, there's a couple considerations. The first is, I think, a deeply ingrained political logic uh, in the Chinese state, which associates overpopulation with political instability. A colleague of mine, uh, Jeremy Wallace, who teaches here at Cornell, has, has written a whole book about this. The, the leaders uh, of the, the Communist Party looked at some other cities in the global south, saw these, these slums that emerged in places in, in India and Southeast Asia, Africa and Latin America, and associate those with political radicalism, right, with crime, uh, these things that, that they really want to avoid. Um, but the idea that there's this one-to-one -one relationship between migrants coming in and political instability is also uh, really problematic because it leads to all kinds of repressive actions against uh, the migrants themselves. So, so there's the political logic, and I should say that in the city of Beijing as the capital, that political logic of this, this fear of, of overpopulation is very, is very intense. There's a, a second part to this, and it's one that I, I focus on more in my book, which is thinking about the developmental aims of these megacities. So places like Beijing and Shanghai imagine themselves as these global cities that are locked in intense competition with other global cities, places like New York and, and London and Singapore, that they're, they're locked in this intense competition in various high value added industries. So thinking about finance, thinking about tech, uh, entertainment, even education to some extent, and to some extent also high value added forms uh, of manufacturing. And so they want to be able to, and this is very clear if you look at the official documents that lay out these strategies, they want to be able to pull in specifically the kinds of workers that will allow that city to be more globally competitive in these very high-end uh, industries. And so what they're doing is they're actually not shutting off in-migration altogether, right? They're not, sh they're not kind of closing down this the circulation of people into the city. What they're trying to do is bring in these very specific kinds of workers. So if you have an advanced degree from a prestigious university in, in finance, right? Not only are you not going to be excluded, there are policies to facilitate you moving into the city. And this is true in Beijing, Shanghai, and, and elsewhere. On the other hand, if you are a construction worker, if you are a street cleaner, or if, you know, if you're a hawker, the city doesn't, doesn't value that labor. That labor does not fit into their plan for economic upgrading. And therefore, the kinds of policies that they have adopted are quite harsh with respect um, to these kinds of workers. And I think much of what you're talking about relates to HUCO admission. So HUCO is this household registration that you were talking about that used to tie somebody to uh, the area in which they had HUCO. So you have people with rural HUCO, and if they go into the cities, they want urban hukos, so they sort of gain thereby a right to live in the cities and presumably, and you can tell me more about this, have access to social services like, for example, education and health care. So the criteria, is it fair to say the criteria for huko admission to the cities are restrictive? And the government has an interest and has been pursuing this interest in only giving uh, certain workers the sort of uh, imprimatur of a legitimacy that comes with having huko in the cities. And also, I, I want to say that I want to also ask that 
you don't have to have huko to live in a city, right? But but you certainly want it in order to gain the benefits of, of living in a city. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You do want huko. One way to think about huko is it is the thing that guarantees you social citizenship. So all of the things that people need to live a decent and, and dignified life, um, including access to public education, access to healthcare, access to subsidized housing to the extent that it exists, pensions, uh, et cetera. Those, uh, you, you do not have guaranteed access to any of those things unless you have huko in the place that you're living. So you can move to Beijing. Like I said, China has a, has a national labor market. They have, in a certain sense, they have freedom of mobility. You won't be rounded up uh, off the streets and, and kind of deported back to your countryside, which which was the case actually prior to 2003, but at least for the last 20 years or so, uh, police are no longer uh, deporting rural migrants. Um, but what it means is that you're going to be entirely dependent on the market for securing all of those things that you need to survive. So if you have fabulously high wages, that's fine. You don't you don't need to worry about getting your child into, into a public school. You can send your kid to to a prep school. Uh, and th there's a lot of people who are non-Beijing Huko people who actually do make a lot of money. For working class people, of course, it poses a real problem uh, because the kind of education that they can buy, and this is, I focus on this a lot in the book, is of course not very good. Uh, and if you're sending your child to, to a school that receives zero subsidies from the state, which is true for a lot of these informal schools for the children of migrant workers, um, they're, they're just not gonna be able to get a very good education uh, despite uh, some of the heroic efforts on the part of, of teachers and, and, and community members. So you, you can move to cities without huko, but it's gonna make your life uh, extremely challenging. So to come back to the first question, how is it that you go about getting huko if you move from, from outside? Uh, this is a highly decentralized system. So every city sets up their own requirements. Uh, as I've already indicated, the larger the city, uh, the more difficult it will be uh, to get huko. The fact that the larger cities are more difficult to get huko is a real problem uh, from uh, the perspective of inequality because the larger the city, the better the social services that they have. And this is something that is widely understood within China, that cities like Beijing and Shanghai have the best public schools, they have the best hospitals, they have the most generous social services. And so you can really see how they're using these administrative arrangements to, to kind of barricade the relative privileges of these, these high quality public goods. They're, they're not actually public goods because they're not available to the public. So what they've developed in, in Beijing and other, in other large cities uh, over the last few years it's, is what's called point-based HUCO admissions. And this is to some extent similar to the kinds of uh, citizenship requirements that Canada has. I, I believe Canada was the first country to develop the, these point-based plans for applying for permanent residency uh, and citizenship. The difference is that Canada, of course, uses it for international immigrants. Uh, and in China, uh, they've developed this for the subnational citizenship regime. So people who are citizens of the PRC, but move from a rural area to one of these large cities, they have to accumulate points. Points. How does one go about accumulating points? It's a little bit different in, in different cities. But in general, the kinds of things that will allow you to accumulate points include First and most importantly is your level of education. So the more education you have, the more points that you can get. Uh, the second thing that is very important in every city is housing. So if you own your own home, then you get more points. If you rent, uh, you get fewer points. If you live in informal housing, uh, you will get no points. And that's, that's true, I think, in, in, in every city. Some, some cities have a more complex arrangement where uh, you know, depending how much of your mortgage you've paid off, you can accumulate more points. It, it can get pretty arcane. So, so housing is, is also really, really important. Um, paying into local social insurance 
So they want to see that you've been living in the city for a certain number of years. And not only that you've been living there, that you've been, you've been paying into, uh, into the healthcare system, into the pension system, et cetera, and you need documentation of that. So what you can see with all of these is that they disadvantage working class people, right? There's lots of people who would love to be able to have social insurance, um, but they're informal workers, right? Or they, they, they might even have a labor contract and so not be totally informal but they have an unscrupulous boss who has not been making their contributions to the social insurance program, which is extremely, extremely common. We've already discussed housing and how difficult it is for uh, many migrant workers to live in formal housing. And so if you live in informal housing, you are also just going to be excluded from these point-based HUCO acquisitions as well. Um, and then I think it's pretty straightforward. The more education you have, the easier it is to get these. Well, you know, lots of people uh, would like to have uh, a graduate degree from a prestigious university in Beijing. Uh, but if you grew up in a rural part of, uh, of China, the, the education system has been severely underfunded uh, over the last 40 years. Uh, you know, China has nine years of compulsory education. Literacy rates are quite high and, and China has always performed quite well in terms of education, given its level of, of development. All that being said, you still do have many millions of people who are, who are undereducated, many people who, who are still illiterate, um, and so they're going to be uh, completely excluded from, from these things. So, you know, the, the kind of the conclusion that I draw from all of this is that we have this access to social goods, which really benefits the people who need at least, right? It benefits rich people and excludes just about everyone else. His name is Eli Friedman. He's an associate professor and he's chair of International and Comparative Labor at Cornell University's ILR School. And his new book is The Urbanization of People, The Politics of Development, Labor Markets, and Schooling in the Chinese City. I'm CS and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So we talked about point-based hukou admission and how difficult that is, given the, the hoops and the obstacles you have to surmount in order to get local hukou in, especially the uh, large cities, the wealthy cities, and much of your book focuses on uh, Beijing. And more or less in tandem with this uh, point-based hukou schemes are point-based public school enrollment procedures for non-local hukou holders. So in other words, uh, people who have not been successful in getting local hukou where they live and work in the cities. So they want to get their children into public school. And as you indicate in your book, that is the desired goal. You want to get your children into public school and not into what are called, I guess, or at least what you call migrant schools, which are private, uh, but those schools, and if we have time, we'll talk more about them, uh, don't provide the kind of quality education that public schools in places like Beijing do. So point-based school enrollment procedures, uh, I assume then you, you know, they look at various factors, various criteria, and determine whether you have enough points in order to deserve or merit the granting of the right to have your children go to public school. What points are assigned for what? How difficult is it to gain admission to public school? The first thing to note about this is that if you fail to move your HUCO, your household registration, to the city where you're living, it does not mean that you are excluded from public education. What it means is that you are not guaranteed access uh, to public education. So you have, again, 300 million people who are living outside of their place of household registration. It's this gargantuan population in some cities, particularly in the Pearl River Delta area in Guangdong province. You have some cities where there's an absolute majority of the population are non-local. So for those people who, are, who will not be able to get HUCO, which is the overwhelming majority of these migrants, 
there's still the possibility that they could get their children into public schools, which, as you said, is what they want to do, right? The, the public schools are the good ones, and the private schools are the bad ones uh, in Chinese cities, with some exceptions. You have some, some very, very high-end uh, private schools. Beijing, the city where I did most of my research, does not yet have these point-based school admission policies, but they are much more prevalent in Guangdong province in the south. I also did research in Guangzhou, um, and I've spent a lot of time living in that area uh, and doing research. My first book was, was largely based on research in Guangzhou. So what they, what they will do, first of all, it is incredibly complicated uh, because it's not only that every city has its own policy, every district within the city will establish its own requirements for admissions, right? So you might move from, you know, from one part of the city to another and you have a totally new um, set of regulations that you have to deal with. The kinds of things that, that allow you to accumulate points for school admissions are, are similar actually to the kinds of things that you need for HUCO admissions. There's a little bit less emphasis on, on the parent's level of education, but the parent's level of education can allow you uh, to generate more points. The most important metric uh, has to do with housing and term of residence, uh, payment into local social insurance as well. So just as with, with the HUCO admissions, the school admissions, if you own a house, you're going to accumulate more points. If you rent a house, you'll accumulate fewer points. If you live in informal housing, you'll not be able to accumulate points at all, right? So immediately this eliminates the, the kind of the lower tiers of the labor market. If, if you're a working class person, you're, there's a great chance that you're living in, in informal housing. And that means right from the jump, you won't be able to get your child into public school uh, via these mechanisms. There's uh, different cities have, have, have different kinds of uh, particular arrangements that allow you to, to, to gain more points or fewer points. One thing that we've seen, um, which has been particularly troubling uh, for many parents, is some districts have a requirement that you have to live, work, and send your child to school in the same district. So, so living in the same district, sending your child to school in the same district is, is normal and is, is common practice around the world. But a lot of people have to live in a peripheral district because that's the only place that they can afford housing and they have to work in a central district because that's the place uh, where the jobs are. And so by dint of, dint of the fact that they're living in these peripheral places and working somewhere else, they also will not be able to get their child into the public schools. And so here we see yet another layer um, where we have this access to public uh, goods that's being guarded by these, these, these metrics, the, these methods of assessing the presumed value of the people. And it overwhelmingly benefits the people uh, who are already the, uh, you know, in the best position. Part of your book, The Urbanization of People, draws on interviews you did with parents, with parents of children uh, enrolled in, I think, primary school in a part of Beijing. And uh, many of these people were working class migrants, perhaps all of them. And they were trying to get their children into uh, public schools, maybe in for future grades or future levels of secondary education. What did they tell you about the impact of some of these points-based and other uh, school enrollment procedures on, on their lives, on the decisions they need to make in relation to their children, in relation to their residents, in relation to their lives? I was doing fieldwork in Beijing in 2014, and what we saw around that period of time just after the central government had announced this plan saying that they were encouraging people to move to the cities, what we saw in Beijing was precisely the opposite, that actually the city was taking increasingly coercive steps to remove people from the city. And they had many levers. They were closing down labor-intensive forms of manufacturing. They were, they were relocating big warehouses out of the city. They were demolishing informal housing. They were also making it much more restrictive to get access to public education. So I talked to a lot of parents who 
um, had this expectation that they might be able to get their child into school based on the formal rules. Like if, if you went to the Department of Education and they said, here, here are the stipulations for non-local people to get your child, your children into public school, uh, they believed that they would be able to get in. And then they found out that the actual practice, practically speaking, there was a invisible set of requirements. So, and those really ramped up in 2014 as the government was trying to make it more and more difficult for people to, to get their children into schools with the hopes that not only would the children leave, but that the parents would also uh, leave with them. So um, just, just one example, in Beijing at the time, they didn't have these point-based school admissions. They had this five permits system was what it called, where you had to produce a bunch of documentation, uh, including the, the child's huko. Um, you had to present a, a labor contract, a housing deed, etc. Um, people would gather all of the paperwork that the government had told them that they needed, and then they would go back and and then the Department of Education would say, oh no, we actually need you to, to, to come up with something else, right? So one of, the, one of the really common ones was we need you to demonstrate that you've paid into social insurance. This is not written down anywhere, uh, at the time anyway, it was not written down anywhere, but they, they began demanding it for public school admissions. And so people would go around and, and, and try to work that out. I, I interviewed uh, one family and they said, that the father, the mother was, was informally employed and so she didn't have any hope of being able to provide a documentation for social insurance. The father had been working uh, for an employer. That employer had not been paying their social insurance as the employer is legally obligated to do. And so you have this, you know, this working class uh, family who had moved from the countryside to Beijing. What they did is they went with the boss and, and they themselves were trying to pay into the social insurance plan, the thing that was the, the boss's responsibility but he failed to do, that they, they were trying to pay into the social insurance plan so that they could get documentation that would then allow their child to get into to school. Another thing that, that has happened, and I also I interviewed parents that told me these stories about their housing, where they were living in informal housing, and so this question of providing a, a rental agreement Sometimes you can go in with a kind of shoddy rental agreement and it's just a document that you and your, your uh, landlord drew up together and, and that would work. But if the uh, education department is feeling uh, like they want to be a little bit more rigorous, then they might demand um, a, a kind of a more formalized, legally binding lease, a as well as uh, documentation that the landlord had paid taxes on that property, which as informal housing, they, they probably have not. So I interviewed some parents who said that they went with their landlord to the tax bureau and they were going to pay the taxes on this informal house for their landlord so that the tax bureau would then issue the certificate that they had paid taxes, which they could then take back to the Department of Education as proof that they're actually living in this place and, and that, it's, that it's a legitimate uh, lease therefore allowing their child to get into school. And, and you know, sometimes that would work and, and sometimes it wouldn't. Um, there's also widespread understanding among migrant parents that even if they do all of the paperwork, even if the Department of Education signs off, that the schools themselves are still not legally obligated to take their children. And every migrant parent that I talked to, that I asked about this, understood that they would have to pay bribes uh, in order to get their children into school. Um, in the mid-2010s, uh, when I started this research, uh, people generally assumed that the, that the bribe that they would have to pay would be between 20,000 and 100,000 yuan. So that could easily be a year's a salary for many of these working class migrants uh, at the time. So it's, it's not an insubstantial amount of money. So what, what, the, what the field work allowed me to do was to look at, you know, what are the policies as written down and then how, do they actually, how are they actually put into practice? And we can see when they are put into practice that all of these additional obstacles uh, can appear. You are listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm C.S. Song. Eli Friedman teaches international and comparative labor at Cornell University. And we are talking about his new book. It's called The Urbanization of People, The Politics of Development, Labor Markets, and Schooling in the Chinese City. It's published by Columbia University Press. On againstthegrain.org, we have a link to Eli's faculty page at Cornell's 
ILR school as well as to his new book. Well, given the fact that these children, these children of working class migrants in many cities in China, are largely excluded from public education in the cities, what do the parents do with them? The most popular choice is for families to just be split up, right? So there are tens of millions of so-called left-behind children in China. Those refer to the children who are living either without one or either of their parents uh, back in the village, and they're being raised by extended family uh, or by grandparents, and they just go to public school uh, in the village and, and you know, only see their parents uh, maybe once a year, sometimes not even that. So there, there's obvious, uh, you know, psychological and developmental effects on, on children from, from not seeing their parents. So this must be an emotionally wrenching situation for uh, parents, as you're suggesting, not feeling like they're able to move back to their hometowns, to their home villages with their children who need an education, and that's really the, the best situation for the children at the time. Uh, for these families to be split up and separated, um, I imagine often over long distances. It's an unbelievably difficult situation. The The combination of this national labor market, which really compels people to move to cities to find jobs uh, in order to support their family with this very fractured access to education uh, system that they have has really eviscerated uh, the rural family. I mean, there are, there's a whole generation that is that has grown up um, that has just not been able to enjoy the, the basic human right of, of living with their family. Um, and it creates just endless challenging, impossible decisions uh, for parents um, and for families. So if you're, if you're, China's a big country, it's diverse, right? But in many places, you cannot survive staying in the countryside. There are just not adequate economic opportunities. Uh, there are not adequate jobs in order, for, in order for you to support your family. So you have to move to the cities. Once you've made that decision, then the question is, do you bring your child with you or not? And bringing your child with you to, you know, enjoy all of the, the joys of seeing of seeing your child uh, grow up um, means that you might be forsaking that child's very future, right? Because they can't have access to decent public schooling, or you can leave them in the countryside where they will have access to public schools. They're not nearly as good as the public schools in the city, and so the child's future is still maybe not particularly uh, bright. Um, but there's research that shows that on average, from a purely educational outcome standpoint, you're better off leaving your child in the countryside. And then you're in the city uh, working to, to support that child, but you, you, you never get to see them. Well, Eli, we've been talking about actually just two chapters of your book, The Urbanization of People. Uh, what else is addressed in your book, in this book? The book deals with a number of issues. I begin with this overview of the, the policy, and I just look at what the government says it's doing in terms of its urbanization policy, in terms of urban development, and in terms of education, and thinking about how these all uh, fit together. The bulk of the book is then turning to ethnographic uh, and interview-based research to look at the effects of state policy, how it impacts people's daily lives, how it impacts the location as well as the demolition and the relocation uh, of these schools. One piece, we've talked uh, quite a bit about these various administrative arrangements that kind of apply this pressure on rural families to leave the cities. Those are extremely important in sifting people away, getting them to move to smaller cities or back to the countryside. But I also spend some time looking at some of the more coercive efforts, and there have been a huge number of school demolitions that have taken place in Beijing and, and other large cities over the last uh, couple of decades, where in the process of urban redevelopment, the land comes to be more valued um, for its, its, its market value, and they want to build high-rises, they want to build a mall, or what have you, and these informal schools for migrant children are just not valued by the city, so they just show up with, with, with a bulldozer. And so I detail the consequences of these, of, of these demolitions and what it means for families when they are ejected from schools um, kind of without much notice. 
I also spend, um, I have an entire chapter that looks at the labor conditions for the teachers. I'm trained as a labor scholar and that's actually how I got into this project. I'm not trained in, in urban studies or, or in education studies. So uh, one of the things that really struck me when I first got to these schools was just how abysmal the working conditions were for the teachers. These are, again, totally informal, privatized schools. Some of them are run pretty ruthlessly as businesses. Uh, and so the boss, they, they don't refer to the, the principal, they refer to the, the boss, uh, is constantly trying to get the teachers to work longer hours, uh, to take on more tasks. The teachers in Beijing uh, are typically being paid well below minimum wage. They don't have labor contracts themselves, so their labor is totally informal. And you have these, these, these folks who are incredibly dedicated to, to the kind of the social mission of educating people who would otherwise be completely excluded, uh, but they simply don't have uh, the conditions to, to, to flourish and to allow their students to flourish. Um, and, then, uh, and then I conclude with, with a, a comparative and a global extension of the research and, and really thinking about this question about how human movement is managed in relationship to processes uh, of capitalist development. Um, and I, I look at Beijing in comparison uh, to some other cities, both com uh, the comparison and, and relationally, because if uh, you'll recall, I think of Beijing as being at the top of this, this apex that funnels all of these resources to the top. But since the government is interested in having people move to smaller cities, I also investigated uh, some of those. And the problems there are, are different, um, but they're, they're not without problems. Uh, it may be easier to get into public schools in some of those smaller cities, but those schools are, are severely under-resourced, and so it's not necessarily uh, a better deal for, for those children. The book is The Urbanization of People, The Politics of Development, Labor Markets, and Schooling in the Chinese City. The author, my guest, is Eli Friedman. He's Associate Professor of International and Comparative Labor at Cornell University. Thanks, Eli, for writing this book and for joining us today. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And that program first aired last October 25th. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning. And we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. <laughs>